Well, today we move into a chapter of 11 of the Gospel of Mark. And, um, you know, I went back just in my mind because I've been in the Sunday school class of Mark since uh, Tim Ryan started this in Mark many months ago. I don't really remember when it was. It was over in the old building. Was it a year ago? Close to a year ago. And, um, you know, I, I had to go back and refresh myself. Um, some of you younger people may not understand that concept, but someday you will. And and it was really interesting for me to, to realize that starting way back in chapter 1 and verse 14 and then to look forward a little bit to the end of chapter 13, Mark devotes all of that time to the explanation of the ministry of Jesus. And of course, you know, as, as Tim Ryan taught us before that Mark, uh, uh, comparatively with the other authors anyway, is more of a jet set kind of guy. You know, he just really moves quick. But but that's a lot of ground to cover to talk about the ministry of the Lord. And when you start looking at it, or at least for me personally, when I start looking at it like that, and as we looked at last week with the determination that um, that the Lord had as he was moving forward, you know, um, I remember, again, I'm often reminded of Shane's preaching in Luke years ago when, you know, he set his his face towards Jerusalem. He was very, very determined. And last week I gave an illustration from a World War II uh, battle at uh, Normandy of that. But then I thought about it again last night. We were watching a movie on, on, on um, PBS, Gloria, a Civil War movie, and the general that, or not the general, but the colonel that led the charge on that fort, and, um, you know, they were 272 of them killed, but he was determined, you know, he led his troops, and and that's kind of the, the, you know, we see that even more so in Christ, because he's the only one that died then, anyway, right, and, and, uh, but, and he knew it, you know, and and so this last phase of his ministry that we're going to really pick up on now, this chapter 11, verse 1 through 13, 37 starts kind of the end you know the pressing towards that and in chapter 11 alone just kind of to give a um, an outline of it Mark describes four events that we'll look at over the next few weeks which were really preparatory to the to the uh, public ministry that he was that Christ was going to have in Jerusalem the first one of those was the entry into Jerusalem as Messiah and then the return to Bethany that evening, and that's what we're going to look at today in verses 1 through 11. But then the second one is the cursing of the fig tree the next morning, and that's in verses 12 through 14. And thirdly, that's followed by the cleansing of the temple in verses 15 through 19. And then finally, the lesson from the withered fig tree to the disciples the following morning, and that's in verses 20 through 25. Well, this, this event here, the, this what we call the triumphal entry, is the second time that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the same event. And in Matthew, it's in chapter 21. If, you just, or if you're taking notes, you can write that down and, and uh, read that later. 21, 1 through 11. Luke is 19, 29 through 44. John is uh, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The only other event recorded in all four Gospels was what? Do you all remember? Uh, Tim Ryan told us this when he taught on this part. 
All four Gospels, these are the only two events, the triumphal entry and the feeding of the 5,000. That's right. And so this passage introduces, as I said, the final week of our Lord's life in public ministry. And, you know, and I know all that. And like I said, when Shane preached through Luke, we, we've heard all those things. But when you put it in perspective, I mean, we're talking about the final week. Think about that for your own life. If you knew starting today, Sunday, you got, well, till Friday, till Friday right, the final week, would you think differently? Would you get the bucket list out, you know, and try and do all those things? He certainly didn't do it that way, did he? But I just wonder how that would feel to know, you know, medically speaking, you know, we hear the things of, well, they got six months to live, you know, but that's just a, um, well, the doctor in here, I don't want to say a guess, but, you know, I mean, an educated guess, right, that, that may happen, but Jesus flat out knew exactly what was going to happen. None of this was by surprise. And that kind of, that that shows me that, again, just a, a glimpse of how awesome he is. That, you know, that he, because he didn't do it for himself, right? He, he was doing all this for us. So, um, final week of his ministry, Jerusalem at Passover season was a delight to the Jews, but it was also great despair for the Romans and, and the government. Thousands of devout Jews from all over arrived in the holy city. Their, their hearts filled with the uh, nationalistic f- uh, fever of, of being a Jew, and this is our time and our city. And, you know, there's different views, varying views as to how many Jews would actually come into the city of Jerusalem during this Passover week. But the popular opinion is that it it more than tripled the population. But I read everything from 250,000 extra to 2 million. So that's a pretty big (laughs) span of people, you know. But either way, lots and lots of of more there. And, And... this huge increase would make it necessary for the Roman military to be on special alert, just like here in Atlanta. You know, when we have a big event, the the police are on special alert because we just need more um, officials on the streets to keep law. And and so the Roman military would have been the same way. They, they actually lived with the possibility of, um, is that door locked? I think somebody's trying to. Somebody was peeking in. It looked like they were trying to get in. But they lived with the possibility of, you know, that some Jewish zealot, uh, are we good? Some Jewish zealot might try to kill a Roman official or, or start a riot. You can imagine what would happen if a riot broke out. And, and then, but there was also the possibility of disputes among the different sects of Judaism itself, just like there are with Christians today, right? You know, that we, we differ um, on some things, and, and when you get this many people together, a riot could start even from a religious perspective. And I um, have some friends that, um, uh, you know, I, I, that's one thing. I just have chosen to, to try and guard myself. The word try, I've got to throw in there as a qualifier because I don't always do a very good job of it, but to just not argue theology with people, you know, and, and and I'll never forget the first time I heard this, but some dear friends of mine 
in, in another denomination, uh, they like to get together for what they call smoking ale. And uh, I thought the first time I heard that, surely you've got that's some kind of code. You know, surely they're not talking about smoking cigars and drinking beer. So I asked him afterward. This was a this guy made a public announcement at a men's conference I was at actually that Friday night smoking ale at my house. I thought, what in the world could that be? So um, I asked him, and sure enough, he said, "Yeah, we get together and drink beer and smoke cigars and discuss theology." And I thought, I can't think of a bigger formula for a good fist fight than <laughs> than alcohol and theology. You know, I mean, think about that. And just the differing views. So, you know, as you get all of these visiting Jewish sects into Jerusalem for this special occasion, there, there was absolutely the, the case that a dispute could, could rise up. So the Roman uh, military were always on edge. But, and, and it's kind of <clears throat> interesting to me, too, with all that just picture in your mind. I, I just looked at some pictorial things. Jim Dowdy, our missionary from uh, Mexico, he and his wife Carolyn were in town this week and met with the elders yesterday and presented their new ministry and it was really a blessing. But Kit and I had breakfast with them um, Friday morning and we were um, talking about, you know, the, the just the dynamics of ministry and, and this, that and the other. And I started telling him about teaching the class and, and how I was trying to find some um, just pictures, right, of, that you knew were, were good from a good source. And he told me, I can't remember, I was wanting to tell you all, I didn't write it down, the website, but there's a guy from Master's Seminary that has made hundreds of trips, I guess, to Israel and has spent a lot of time over there. And he's built a website of these massive albums of pictures of Jerusalem and the temple and you know, not, of course, it's ruined now, but, you know, just dis- very descriptive of, because I wanted to get a picture in my mind of what this would look like. And, and, you know, with hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, crowding in this one city with the city walls and just how packed, you could imagine, you know, what it was like with all the extra animals that would have been in there on top of the people. And here comes our Savior that in less than a week remaining, he'd be crucified. And he walks into a situation like this. And this, um, historically, uh, this week began with his arrival. It was the 10th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. It's the month Nisan in the year A.D. 30. And, of course, it was Passover week. And I think it's important for us to understand that the traditional title for this event, the triumphal entry, really does not capture what was really happening. And as I thought about that at the beginning of the week, I was like, I don't like that title because my Savior was killed. So why could that be the, you know, that doesn't sound like a triumph. It sounds like a betrotting. But then as I thought it through, I said, well, no, it really was triumphal. Nobody got it that it was triumphal then. But that's there for us, you know, that we know that here is the beginning of the triumph of, of, of tri- our Lord triumphing over death and sin. And this was the beginning of it. So as we look at the coronation, uh, you know, certainly was, was not in any way an earthly or a heavenly coronation of Christ. 
There were no, no formalities associated with the event, no dignitaries, no fanfare. And coronations, if you think in your mind of the, you know, the Queen of England and, you know, the princes and when they do it, princesses, when they do all that, you know, they're not humble. They're not unexpected. They're not spontaneous. They're not unofficial. They're not superficial. And this event was all of those, right? Um, and on top of that, the, the, that truth that coronations are not, this is the biggest one, are not reversed a few days later with the execution of the one you just had the whole ceremony for. And that's exactly what happened here, right? He was rejected and executed, the one that was being coronated. So it's not an ordinary coronation. John MacArthur said, although Jesus was heaven's true king, deserving of all exaltation, honor, worship, and praise, this was not a real coronation. It was, in fact, the false coronation of the true king. That really sums it up well. Well, let's read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 11. It says, Now they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and I will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat on and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You can see the exclamation points in your text there. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So <clears throat> here we see that Jesus and the disciples and the crowd that was following them from Jericho, as we saw last week, they're coming near to Jerusalem. They come to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Uh, <clears throat> the little district, Bethphage, was a little tiny place between Jerusalem and Bethany. And a traveler, if you can just, I tried to, you know, picture in my mind is how this would look traveling down at this elevation or up to this elevation, a traveler approaching from the east, coming from Jericho, which they had done, <coughs> excuse me, would come to Bethany about two miles from Jerusalem on the slope of the Mount of Olives. And the elevation at this point uh, is about 2,600 feet above sea level. And from it, you have a breathtaking view of the whole city. You know, so here they come. They can look out. They see the city. And on the road that Jesus took, as you rounded the south side of the Mount of Olives, you would pass by Bethphage before entering into Jerusalem. So Bethany was two miles out. Bethphage was somewhere between Jerusalem and uh, Bethany. And Mark... it kind of looks like a weird little contradiction at first when you look at his account because it says they came he he lists Bethphage first and Bethany second but you know traveling the way you would you would come to Bethany first 
but you know it, it's just his way of writing I guess I had no good explanation for why he put it that way and some of the other writers have it Bethany and then Beth Page but um, certainly they went to both places as we'll see and maybe that's just perhaps why he wrote it that way so in, in, the, in the account that John gives us in chapter 12 uh, verses 1 through 11 we see that Jesus visited with his friends at Bethany <clears throat> upon arriving from Jericho and remember what I loved it when uh, Tim Ryan gave us questions, you know, that we had to think back a few weeks to see if we remembered. But So here's one. What was so special about Bethany? What what big event happened there? You remember it's in John chapter 12. Pardon? The yeah, the raising of Lazarus. Right. So he was very well known in that town, right? And, you know, they, they were having a dinner for Jesus there this night that he's coming in. You remember the story. Martha served, right? And Lazarus reclined at the table with him. Mary took some expensive perfume and, and, and anointed him with it, wiped his feet with her hair. And then there's Judas Iscariot there, right? And he gets mad over the fact that the perfume is used. We could have sold that and given that money to the poor. Do you think that was really his motive, though? No, no, he was the one that carried the money box, right? He pilfered the money box in one of the other accounts it tells us. So, you know, he's thinking, man, I could have pilfered that too, but he makes a scene there. So that, that's where they're, they are when they come here for dinner. And then we see in verse 2, that Je- or the end of verse 1, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, verse 2, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Now, <clears throat> we're not sure which two Jesus sent. It's not mentioned in any of the accounts. Um, you know, in my mind, what do y'all think? Probably one of them would have been Peter, I would think, you know, because he was very zealous, you know, and anybody trying to keep me from untying it, you know, he's the guy that cut the guard's ear off. You know, he probably had in his mind that we'll just take care of business here. But since Jesus was in Bethany, staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, we can assume that the village was the one in front of them, which would have been the, the Bethphage on the way into the gates of Jerusalem. So varying opinions are out there as to the availability, how the, the availability of the cult was, cult was known by Jesus. In one view, I'll, I'll give you the two that, that I looked at. One view is that Jesus made advance arrangements for that day. He knew he was coming into the city to fulfill uh, a, a biblical prophecy, so he made arrangements ahead of time to the owner of the cult to have it tied up this day, this time. This view would say that, that you don't need to look at this availability as a miraculous occurrence. The cult was tied there because Jesus had arranged it. John chapter 10, this is where they can back that up some. John chapter 10 tells us that Jesus made a quick trip to Jerusalem in what would have been uh, January, and and there, and he appeared at the Feast of Dedication, and that was about three months prior to this event. So he could have made arrangements when he was there, right? And uh, the other view believes uh, that Mark viewed the event as demonstrating supernatural knowledge on the part of Jesus, and that's the camp that I'm in. Uh, I mean, he is God. You know, uh, one commentator, Hebert, says it is possible to resort to the view of the previous arrangement with the owner, but the details of the events described rather implied divine foreknowledge. 
Another commentator, Anderson, asserts the notion that Jesus had entered into a prearrangement with someone in the city and knew that the cult would be ready is quite foreign to the spirit of the story. Another commentator, Hendrickson, says, nevertheless, in the view of, of the somewhat similar prediction recorded in Mark 14, 13, that's when Jesus told them, you know, go and find out where we're going to have the meal. The theory that this bit of information had reached Christ's human consciousness in a supernatural manner may well be preferable. So I, I think, you know, this was Jesus, um, the deity of Christ manifesting, and he arranged it, you know. Uh, not ahead of time, but just foreknowledge. Um, he knew that this was going to happen. So Matthew's account in 21, Matthew 21, 2 tells us you'll find a donkey tied and her colt with her. So um, that would make us think that it was pro- probably, a, you know, a younger colt. Um, a colt is a male mule horse donkey less than four years old, but it could be from, you know, very young to up to uh, three years and 364 days, I guess, when they turn four, they're not a cult anymore. Um, And, you know, certainly um, in this day, the the foal would be nursing, you know, if it were, I don't know how, I'm not an equestrian type of guy, but um, actually I have a problem with horses, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) Um, But they... uh, they, I don't know. Does anybody know how long they nurse? Yeah, I'm not sure, but uh, I was in Peru one time and was take, took a couple hours off from the teaching I was doing, and I, I went through the village with my camera, and I turned a corner, and there was a uh, a uh, mama donkey, and that was a horse actually, and she was tied to the wall, and the baby was right there nursing off of her, you know, so. You can't separate them, right? So when you use the mother horse for, that was the interesting thing, too. I think of how pampered animals are here. And, I mean, I pamper mine. I'm all for pampering. Don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, that just because it had a baby doesn't mean it doesn't work. And the baby just goes with the mama, you know. And that's, according to Matthew's account, that's what you had going on here. So why the choice of a young donkey that had never been ridden? Well, that answer is from Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah 9, 9, 500 years before this event, that the Messiah would come riding on the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on the don- on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, uh, like I said, a male is younger than, a colt It means a male younger than four years old. A foal actually means young, not yet a year old. So maybe they do nurse for a full year, I don't know. But Jesus, what he was doing here was fulfilling the prophecy to the letter. In fact, he even exceeded it, right? Because what he he said, make it on one which no one's ever ridden, and that wasn't part of what um, Zechariah had said. This was uh, because the biblical culture in that time, the, you know, the reason it had to be these 
uh, specifics of it was that an animal devoted to sacred tasks must be one that had never been used for the ordinary use. So this foal, this colt, this foal had never had its ordinary task performed for it, you know. And, and it's an amazing thing to me to go to parts of, of our world that actually use these animals for the reason that God created them to be used for rather than to look, sit out in a pasture and look pretty. Um, and they're, they're, work, they're workhorses. I mean, they are workhorses. I've, again, back in Peru, these pictures are just as clear in my mind as I'm looking at y'all of walking around this village and seeing donkeys. I, I saw an, an older lady come into town with her donkey loaded down with these huge sacks so I just kind of followed her, you know, at a distance. I wasn't, you know, stalking her or anything, but I got a good lens on my camera. And she stopped in front of this building, and this man came out, and he these sacks were too big for her. And, and this thing wasn't tethered. She didn't have a lead on it. it was, she was just walking, and it was following. And he took the sacks off, and then I kind of was standing at the door and watching, and and it was a mill, and she had corn, and, and he ground it into meal, or is that what you call it, cornmeal, yeah, and put it back in the sacks, put it back on the donkey for her, and they weren't tied or anything. They were just these huge sacks on this little bitty donkey, and she starts walking back down the street, and it follows her, and to home, home they went. So, you know, it was important for the prophecy here that, that that animal had never been used for its intended purpose when Christ used it. And there are a couple other examples, if you want to just jot down these references in the Old Testament, that that show that an animal <clears throat> devoted to a sacred tax, task must be one that had not been put to ordinary use. Numbers 19, verse 2, Deuteronomy 21, 3, and 1 Samuel 6, verse 7. But think about this for a minute with me. This young donkey had never been ridden. It's never had a rider on its back. It's never had a sack of corn on its back. It's never had anything on it, right? Well, have you ever tried to get on um, any type of equine creature, is that what you call them, that had never been ridden? It's not a pretty sight. You know, I mean, you ever watch those bucking bronco guys at the rodeo? You know, you know. They go crazy when you get on their back. The only thing they want is to get you off of their back, right? And they move in all kinds of different directions to accomplish that. Yet this animal is docile, responsive, obedient, and it's going in complete contradiction to its natural instincts. And the behavior of this cult was not natural, but we got to remember that the rider was also the one that commanded the winds and the waves to cease, and they did. And then I thought as well of, flip with me in your Bibles in Numbers 22. Another example of a donkey. Uh, let's see. Yeah, look at starting in uh, Numbers 22 and verse 22. This is the story, of course, of Balaam and his donkey, Verse 22 says, but God's anger was kindled because he went. Balaam decided to go. And, and actually, God had told him to go, but only do this. And God knew his heart. 
and knew that he was going and he was going to do something he wasn't supposed to do. So that's why God gets angry here. And, and the, so verse 22, but God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, he pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. And the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. Whoa. The donkey saw. Who is the angel of the Lord? How do you understand that? Who? Christ, yeah. It's a theophany of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, and the donkey saw and and basically was bowing down, you know, knowing that, and, um, you know, so it's interesting to me when I started looking at this account that, again, you've got Jesus in, in a donkey. Uh, riding a donkey, contrary to what we think today, then it was a kingly act which identified Christ with the royal line of David. You know, today they don't do that. Donkey was a royal animal during David's reign. But the Hebrew kings in subsequent years switched to horses. Uh, and then the donkey was, of course, considered unsuited for the dignity of a royal king. But King Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he rode the young donkey. And it was to fulfill that prophecy. And, you know, what an honored beast, right? What an honored beast. And I found a great poem, and I'm not a good reader of poetry, but I'm going to read it for you anyway. This is uh, by G.K. Chesterton, a um, great poem about the lowly donkey. And this is what he wrote. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry, and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth, of ancient crooked will, starved, scourged, derid me, I am dumb, but I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far pierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. Isn't that good? The lowly old donkey. Um, you know, and I think there's just a lot of things that, you know, I, I don't want to miss that kind of stuff when I read the scriptures. You know, that, that our Lord, in his humble way, he, he came into this massive amount of people, into the grand holy city, 
a humble man riding the lowliest of beasts in man's eyes, right? So uh, two of them go into Bethphage, and they find the colt. Of course, just as Jesus had said it would be found, they untie it. It all unfolded just the way the Savior said it would unfold. And the two guys start to untie it, and some bystanders understandably protested. I mean, wouldn't you? Verse 5 says, and some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? That's a great logical question. I mean, we don't know who you are. You know, why are you untying that, that colt? And um, how did, they had no idea that they had the right to do that. So the two followed what Jesus had told them in verse 3, and they said, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back immediately. You know, and evidently that explanation appears to have removed any objections, right? I mean, because they don't argue any further. They just let it go. And in one of the other accounts, I can't remember which one it was, uh, talked about the owner was there, so possibly one of the bystanders, you know, was watching this and uh, Jesus and his disciples, you know, they, Jesus in particular was known in, um, in the area. You see that in chapter 11 with all the attention that he'd gotten of, of John chapter 11, with all the attention that he'd gotten from the laser, raising of Lazarus. So the owner probably understood exactly what they meant when they said the Lord has need of it, that they were referring to Jesus. And the fact that he, they said that he will send it back immediately was evidently enough assurance for him. So then you move into verse 7, and it says, They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And the disciples, we see they, you know, they make a saddle, if you will, out of their uh, garments. And many patriotic Jews that were there on the pilgrimage headed into Jerusalem, you know, they they join in that procession. And um, when welcoming a king, it was customary. You may wonder, well, why in the world would they do all this? But it was customary for people to lay their outer garments on the road and to cut leafy branches. Of course, we always call it, you know, Palm Sunday, palm branches. And I read some different views on that this week, and I just decided not to talk about it because it just starts making my head spin. But, um, you know, whether this was Sunday or Monday that this was actually taking place. But anyway, Second Kings chapter 9, verse 13 says... Uh, then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehua is king. So you see that that's a this laying of of branches and garments on the ground was something that uh, is customary in having someone a king come in. And then verse nine says, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the, the name of the Lord. Verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So this shouting out is thought to have been an um, antiphonal. You all know what that means? I had to, I had to look that word up. It's, it's kind of the, um, well, here's the dictionary. It's music sung in alternating parts, a hymn or a psalm performed by two groups of singers um, chanting alternate sections. Um, so what is thought by the scholars is that in front of Jesus there were people and behind Jesus there were people. The first group shouted Hosanna. 
The second group shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The first group, Hosanna in the highest. And this went back and forth and back and forth. And um, that, that, those lines are repeated in, in all of the four of the Gospels. And it's from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 113 through 118 are called the Egyptian Hallel. And Hallel means praise in Hebrew. And these were sung at Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. But the greatest significant was done at Passover, which celebrated the Jews' deliverance from Egypt, of course. And this was a time when they were coming into the city for their Passover celebration. They were singing these songs in praise of their, the Lord's deliverance of their ancestors from Egypt. And I don't know if you remember a few years ago, if you were here at the church, Darby and Kyle Jones, uh, they actually put together, they wrote songs for Psalm 113 through 118, and we sang those uh, around um, Easter time. And uh, it was really neat because that's this is what the they would have done. I mean, this is still done in Jewish uh synagogues and homes today as you're approaching that time as they have their remembrance of their deliverance of their ancestors so hosanna literally means save us so think about that the people were prophetically repeating over and over that jesus was their deliverer they're they're shouting save us save us save us not even the disciples themselves understood this i don't think the full importance of what they were saying wasn't known to even the disciples until later. John 12, verse 16 says his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that those things had been written about him and had been done to him. So Jesus is in complete control. He's actually making a huge statement here. And and I don't think Mark wants us to miss it. The donkey that he sat on prophesied of his position and his person. The Hallel Psalms that were being sung repeated his messianic character. The Hosannas described his work of salvation. And it was all on full display. Now the triumphal entry starts to make a little more sense, doesn't it? That that he, he really was triumphing over death and sin. And we can look back and see it very clearly, even though the disciples were right there, struggled with that until he was glorified. So this moment-by-moment event that we see, it's interesting to think of as well. It helps me to understand that this was laid out by God before he even created the world. So it wasn't like a reaction, a reactionary response. This was something that happened, you know, that God planned. So what do you suppose the Romans were thinking as they watched this festive demonstration? You know, here comes this, I hate to say it this way because I don't want to demean it, but, you know, here comes this ragtag bunch of Jews coming into the city with their king sitting on a lowly donkey, you know, and I, I just wonder what was going through their mind because an official Roman triumph was indeed something to see, a whole lot different than this. When a, a Roman general came back after a conquest of his enemy, the priest burned incense in his honor. The people shouted his name. They praised him. And, and this is really 
alarming. <laughs> the procession, these Roman processions would end at the arena where the people were entertained. The general populace was entertained by watching the captives that they had taken fight with wild beasts. So in other words, here's what we've taken. Now everybody come and watch this spectacle as people are being torn to shreds by wild animals. That was a Roman triumph, and the one of Jesus wasn't anywhere like that, was it? Jesus was God's anointed king, God's savior, but his conquest was spiritual and not military. And that's where the blindness was coming in, right? But think about this. A Roman general had to kill at least 5,000 enemy soldiers to merit a triumph. In order to get this parade, you had to kill at least 5,000 and then bring in all these captives with you. But in just a few weeks, what happened with Jesus' triumphal entry? The gospel conquered 5,000 Jews in the book of Acts shortly after this. A few weeks later, you know. So Jesus' victory came at the, after the entry. So his triumphal entry was life over death, the triumph over sin. Um, Perhaps we should stop there because I want to take a look at Luke's account of this for just a few minutes um, before we move back into the closing of Mark's. And it would take longer than we've probably got since it's 10 o'clock right now. So we'll look at that next week, I suppose.